Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you um, yet another morning, because I've been here uh, at the invitation of your minister over these last two days, uh, conducting different seminars. I have a very simple question for you this morning. How can you be sure that Christianity is true? So many voices around us that say at best, Christianity is based on myth. So come with me to that reading from Second Peter this morning. And if you've got a Bible in front of you or beside you, let me encourage you to pull it out. It's always great, isn't it, to have a Bible with you when you come together as the people of God, because the Bible sits at the heart of everything we do. As we come to this second letter of Peter, we realize that his first century readers were under pressure from their neighbors. They were also under pressure from teachers who were attempting to respond to the awkward, historical, supernatural, and exclusive elements about Christianity. And they were doing it by turning Christianity into a system of myth, and ritual. So the greater weight of what they are doing was to put the weight of emphasis upon the sacramental and the ritual as they gathered as God's people. So let me identify three themes that we find in this reading, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 12 through 21. First, Peter is saying, remember the history. Second, eyewitness evidence. Thirdly, interpretation. So first, he is saying, remember the history. Just have a look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though, I, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. Now, Peter does not say I'm appointing an apostolic successor to continue to define Christian doctrine with the same authority as I do. Nor does he expect the church or the spirit of God to shape Christianity according to the needs and fashions of each new generation according to their new and developing culture. His key word is, and I can hear it from you, remember. Verse 12, he says, I intend to keep on reminding you. Verse 13, I will always make every effort to refresh your memory. So that in verse 15, after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. What's the key word? Remember. So these words, reminder and memory, show us that Christianity is a received truth. There's a body of information that could be known and recalled. It had been given to the apostles by Jesus himself, and he had charged them to pass on the truth. Anyone who has been involved, let me just go back and remember that I've got my notes on two sides of the same page. So my question here is, 
Why is Peter insistent about us remembering what has happened? The significant, or the answer, lies in the two significant points that follow. Eyewitness evidence and the interpretation. But first look at the eyewitness evidence. Look at verse 16. We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. One group that was pushing out fake news about God were called Gnostics. The Gnostics reckoned that special insights were required if anyone was to know the real truth about God. And words such as myth and eyewitness were very important to them. But notice how Peter responds. He says, the narrative that I passed on to you is not some cunningly invented myth. Jesus really is God in the flesh. He truly did rise from the dead, as we've sung already today. This is not fake news. It is the truth. How do I know, he asks? I've got the evidence of my own eyes. Look at the word eyewitness at the end of verse 16. Amongst the mystery cults, anyone who reached a high level was described as being an eyewitness of deity. And so I'm sure you see what Peter is saying. These liberal progressive theologians want to make out that their mystical experiences were marks of spiritual privilege. Well, let me tell you, Peter is saying, they're wrong. There was a day when I stood on a mountaintop with Jesus, and in the cold light of day, I saw him revealed in his true glory, the glory he will bear when he comes again. And Peter says, with my own physical ears, I heard a voice from heaven identify Jesus as his unique beloved son. That day on the mountain, I was an eyewitness of deity in a way that no mystic could ever begin to imagine. So anyone who claims to proclaim Christianity while devaluing or denying the historical reality of the incarnation or the resurrection of Jesus, they're making it all up, Peter is saying. Now, when we think about what's happening in this second letter, in this second letter Peter is treating us, his readers, as members of a jury in a court of law. Now, anyone who's been involved in a court of law knows that there are many times when you can't prove scientifically, conclusively, and absolutely who may be guilty of a crime. But we do know that we can form a reasonable judgment based on the reliability of... No, I know, you're all meant to be quiet when you're here. It's actually one word that I'm allowing you to say aloud. Eyewitnesses! Peter can't prove to us that he saw Jesus in all his glory on that mountain that day. Rather, he invites you and me to trust his eyewitness evidence. The Christian faith is not a leap in the dark. 
It's putting our trust in eyewitness evidence. Now, people sometimes lightly dismiss the records of Peter's time, arguing that their world is so different from ours. After all, people tell me, in Peter's day, they were so backward. They didn't have high sophisticated, high tech, let alone nuclear, nuclear capability. However, they did have one thing in common with you and me. They had eyes in their heads. Statues prove it. And the eyes in those statues are in the same place as you and I have today. So is Peter telling the truth? Can we rely on his testimony? We need to ask what sort of people Peter and the apostles were. We can't exaggerate the importance of these questions, for unless we address them, we'll always have doubts and never find the truth. Now, some here this morning may doubt the exclusiveness of Jesus. But if, people, if what Peter is saying is true, how can Christianity be anything else but exclusive? God either spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, or he didn't. If it's a hoax, it would be far better to stop the pretense and throw it all out. We can do other things on a Sunday morning. But if God did speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son, listen to him, then we must give this man the highest level of our attention because there's nobody else like him before or since. Jesus is unique. Others may have problems with the supernaturalism of Christianity, the miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection. But how can Christianity be anything, else, anything but supernatural if at a time and in a certain place divinity walked amongst men and women? Either Jesus did rise from the dead before many witnesses, or he didn't. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is either telling us, in chapter 15, Paul is telling us the truth that 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses, saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to say, if Jesus isn't resurrected, we are the most to be pitied. Our faith is empty. Well, of course it is. Well, others have got problems about the age of Christianity. It all happened a long time ago, two millennia. It can't be true. Yes, it's true we can't prove Christianity is true in the same way that we might prove that two plus two is equal to four. Christianity is a religion of faith. But that doesn't mean that Christianity is some irrational leap into the dark. And it's certainly not what Peter is asking us to do here. Notice again what he's saying. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we often overlook today is that these men and others with them 
overturned the Roman world, not by armed revolution or by political process, but by the example of their lives and the testimony of their lips. Can you imagine that those disciples of Jesus constructed a monstrous lie? Do you really think that aged Peter, and he was aged when he was writing this second letter, who had been very honest about his early failings and who knew that one day and was probably soon coming when he would be very likely put to death in a most unpleasant way, Can you imagine this Peter lying when he says, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' glory? So we have to assess the reliability of these witnesses as jurors in a court of law. Christianity is not based on myth, but memory. Peter wants to silence the doubts that rise within us, as well as put to silence the ignorance of fools. Which brings us to a third point, interpretation. Are you still with me or have you gone to sleep? Well, some may be saying, okay, I've got no problem with the facts. My issue is interpretation. How do we know that the Bible correctly interprets the events it describes? The crucifixion, for example. And let's consider this for a moment. Jesus died by crucifixion, fact. Historians outside the Bible agree that this happened on the order of the governor in Judea at the time, Pontius Pilate. But the apostles said that Jesus died on the cross so that those who turn to him in repentance and in faith might be forgiven and reconciled with God. Now, there's no way that when we look at at the cross as a mere observer, we would have understood that. The meaning is an interpretation. So how do we know the apostles, like Peter, got it right? Well, look at Peter's answer. It's there in verse 19. We have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a light, a lamp shining in a dark place. So Peter wants us to know that he is not only a reliable witness, but that he is equally dependable when it comes to the matter of interpretation. Why is he so sure? Look at verse 20. You must understand this. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The divinity of Jesus, his birth, his sacrificial death, are not simply human deductions. They are God-inspired testimonies as to what these things mean. In other words, God hasn't left us to work out for ourselves what Jesus did. Rather, the God who had used his vast resources to create the universe has used his vast resources in another way, giving us people to interpret events and to explain what God's actions mean. 
So in verse 21, no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Spirit of God. And I'm sure you pick up the imagery here. It's like a sailing boat before the wind on a sea. The prophets are borne along by the breath of God. This doesn't mean that they are passive instruments of God, any more than sailors are passive passengers. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, we read that Jesus, in his last meeting before his crucifixion, last meeting with his disciples, he says to them, he's going to send them the Spirit of God so that they'll be able to recall accurately and interpret correctly all of Jesus' words and actions. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. If you ever have doubts about this matter of interpretation, go back and have a look at those verses for yourself and ask, can we believe Jesus? The Bible is the product of God's creative breath blowing through human personalities, producing divinely authoritative interpretations of God's actions in our world. Now, some of you may be saying, I find all this very, very difficult to accept. Well, let me ask, what do we believe about Jesus? We believe that the Holy Spirit came upon a fallible human woman and so brought about the conception of a baby who was 100% divine and 100% human. Right from the first cell of conception. So when Peter tells us here that in the case of the prophets, the Holy Spirit has inspired them in such a way that when they spoke and what they wrote was 100% human and 100% divine. In the case of Jesus, it's the miracle of the incarnation, the Word made flesh. In the case of the Bible, it's the miracle of inspiration, the Word made legible. We can read it. In the one single volume of the New Testament pages, God has brought together the eyewitness testimony of the apostles in such a way that Peter can say in verse 19, you'll do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What Peter is saying is that for the present, the glory of Jesus is hidden. We're in a gloomy world, a dark place, and we see this day after day after day in our news media, do we not? You know, in many ways, we share the same darkness that the first followers of Jesus felt on the Saturday between the Good Friday, Jesus' crucifixion, and the Easter day, the day of his resurrection. So we're called upon to walk by faith, not by sight, to live in a time of remembering until Jesus returns. And the darkness of the present is inevitably a threatening place to experience. 
There'll be times when we'll be tempted to ask if Christianity is really true. The Bible's answer is to remind us that Christianity is a true message, one that is confirmed by eyewitnesses, by men and women whose holiness and whose courage no one can question. It's a message interpreted for us, not by mere human theological speculation, but by divine revelation through the inspired words of the prophets. If you want to find faith or reassurance of your faith, do as Peter says. Read and remember what the Bible says. And as you do, it won't be long before the light begins to shine in the dark place of your minds. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Amen.